Hello and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm creator producer Leo Garcia, joined via Zoom by TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. Today we're going to be talking about the HFPA holes who won't be on NBC in 2022. We'll also be talking about cancel culture. Did you say HFPA holes like a holes of the HFPA? Never, never would say that. It's <laughs> I just I had respect for you for a fleeting moment. And then we'll be turning our attention to uh, the state of comedy uh, with a couple of big comedy uh, shows hitting, either launching last week or returning last week. In the case of Mythic Quest, Hacks launching today, if you're listening, on the day this is released. And Breeders wrapping up its second season uh, in a couple of weeks. And I'll give everyone a chance to speak on that. Everyone will get a chance to talk about which comedy they're stumping for. About Breeders? Oh, yeah. No. Everyone can stump for Breeders. Okay. <laughs> It is millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. Skipping ahead to the clicker, our recap of the biggest news items from this past week. Guys, it's it's no secret that the biggest news that hit the, the wire uh, over the course of this week was the fact that NBC declined to pick up the Golden Globes for 2022, canceling them, if you will, in the wake of all the, the mounting controversy uh, we've talked about in the podcast before, uh, the HFPA sort of always kind of a, a vague laughingstock uh, and sort of corrupt entity, but that LA Times piece back in February sort of like set the whole thing on fire uh, and then there were there were even more uh, sort of complaints uh, growing that they weren't making changes after it was acknowledged that they had zero black members amongst their 87 voting panel and they just weren't making changes at all just kind of proceeding business as usual a couple of the consulting firms that were trying to help them through this were just like well we're, we're at we're out we're not helping anymore always um, a good sign yeah, so NBC has decided to forego their relationship in 2022 with leaving the door open for maybe we'll come back in 2023 if they can get their house in order. Uh, ben, you wrote about this for for the site, sort of saying, you know, here are some potential replacements for the Globes. Libby, you have spoken extensively on pod, uh, off pod, about the fact that, you know, good riddance to the globes and and maybe it's time for uh some structural change in the awards season calendar um uh, but what were your guys sort of uh uh thoughts on just nbc actually coming out and canceling uh the golden globes honestly my first thought was i didn't know they could do that um and then my second thought was i didn't think they would do that just because for what it is i i mean that's taking a stand on something and you don't see that a lot with corporations especially one that might cost them money but considering how uh the golden globes ratings cratered this year um i think nbc was just decided to cut its losses decided to take a win in the pr department um and i i don't blame them it's the right call like the golden globes never deserved to be as seemingly influential in the film world at least as they were um they didn't under they didn't deserve all the ink that was spilled over them um they didn't deserve any prestige whatsoever and now we're slowly kind of you know dismantling them to become the film version of the cable ace awards and good riddance one of the things that stands out to me about the timing of this announcement is that uh, we are in the midst, as we've widely noted on the podcast, of 
uh, ratings crater when it comes to award shows. Uh, and the Golden Globes signed an extremely lucrative deal with uh, NBC that uh, if ratings dipped as we saw they dipped this year, if they continued to drop as much as they did, would have meant a huge overvaluation uh, overvaluation of of that show. It just wouldn't have been worth it to them. Um, so by announcing that they're going to suspend it this year, I don't know how that affects the actual contract, uh, but I would imagine that it would be a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty good renego- renegotiation tactic uh, after this year when they get to watch and see how all the other award shows perform and if the ratings bounce back or if the ratings stay low. Uh, and then if they do decide or another network decides that the Golden Globes are worth revisiting, they'll just bring it back at a much cheaper cost. Uh, so I, I think it's a little preemptive to say that the Golden Globes are gone and dead. I am definitely surprised and enthusiastic that uh, it's trending that way, that there's at least one foot in the grave. Uh, but in Hollywood, nothing ever ends, as we know. So I'm I'm suspicious to, to believe fully that this is the, the last we've heard of the Golden Globes. I am very curious because uh, it was in that LA Times piece from February, it was revealed, or accusations were revealed that the Globes were uh, self-dealing, yeah. um, paying members to create content for the Golden Globes. Um, so my big question is, without the deep pockets of NBC, can the Golden, can the HFPA continue to exist um, as an organization? Just like running costs. It doesn't feel like an organization that has a ton of money uh, squirreled away for a rainy day. Um, it certainly seemed like they were using every dollar they got. Um, so I, I'm very curious for how long they can continue existing without kind of a, a generous uh, benefactor. Ben, you also reminded me, aside from like the fact that, you know, they were snubbing uh, shows like I May Destroy You, uh, not attending press conferences for shows such as Bridgerton, uh, Girls Tripper, and Queen and Slim. The show was also just really bad. <laughs> That's, like, for all the money that NBC was giving them, and I think this, this speaks to Libby's self-dealing comment and, like, not squirreling money away for a rainy day, they did the la- they had the laziest of any of the award shows during pandemic. Well, it's an interesting compare and contrast with what happened at the Oscars, uh, in which a lot of people claimed that, you know, the the mentality of the producers was basically, hey, we know a ton of people aren't going to tune into this. We know it's going to be a down year. So we're going to make this ceremony for the people who are there. We're going to invest everything, you know, into making it an intimate space and, and you know, redeveloping and, and basically saying, you know, okay, we're not going to worry about attracting a ton of viewers this year we're just going to worry about putting on the best show we can for the people in the house uh which you know we discussed at the time already but it's it's i guess it's starting at the same ideas it seemed like the golden globes people started with except (laughs) the golden globes people were like well we're going to lose a lot of viewership this year we're not going to put any effort in at all we're not going to worry about making it look good for the people in the building or the people sitting at home so see you later but here's the thing it would be one thing if they did that and conserve funds, but they didn't. They used their money in very stupid ways. And by that, I mean having a dual coast broadcast that no one was asking for and that looked like shit. Um, 
so instead of having one single location, one set, one crew, they had to, they doubled it for negative effects. Uh, here's something I don't hear people talking about enough. And this is the last thing I have to say on this matter. But didn't the Emmys look good this year? Weren't the Emmys like a fine time, an original time? Didn't they, weren't they just a, a, a real achievement in pandemic awards ceremonies? And they were first, first out the gate. First best. And yeah, they, they definitely no stand in, de- they definitely stand in defiance to the idea that you couldn't put on an entertaining award show during a pandemic for people at home, which was one thing that I did hear in defense of this year's Oscars, where it was just like, listen, of course they should just make it an intimate in the room focused event. It was like, no, 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 that's still not exactly what it is. Uh, so, you know, look to your ancestors, look, look to history, people. Look to your ancestors. But yeah. yeah, it's like if you have only watched the Golden Globes and then you watch the Oscars, you're like, oh, this is as good as it can get. But uh, wrong. Uh, and Libby, I'll give you a moment here to just really quickly say what what you think uh, the Emmys should do in 2022. It breaks my heart because, like, I just keep beating this drum. And every time I beat this drum, I know in my heart that the reason it doesn't happen is because of money um, and history. I hate history. Um, but... I, the Emmy should move to the Oscars, to the film award schedule. They should take the Golden Globe spot. They should serve as like a bookend for the Oscars and the Emmys. That would give more credence and importance to the Guild Awards. Uh, it would build in more anticipation for the Emmys themselves. People would maybe remember to watch them because they aren't in the middle of fucking September for no reason. Uh, For no reason that makes sense for the last 20 years. Um, It just, it it just, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to adhere to a, uh, to an outmoded version of television that would debut in September and end in May. Like, it's... I don't know. I like. I, I. I'm running out of words to say. What, what? <laughs> the Emmys should move to the Golden Globe spot. With the advent like, of streaming and the ever blurring lines between what is quote unquote film and what is television, why not have the two biggest award shows, the Emmys and the Oscars, to Libby's point, bookend the entire award season and sandwich everything else in between them, and have it so that the Emmys open it up. You get all the guilds, the Oscars close it, everyone is happy. All right, well, moving on to my joking cancel culture segment of, uh, of the clicker. Donald Glover tweeted uh, some pretty cryptic tweets that uh, we picked up here at IndieWire, uh, where he was essentially stating, uh, saw people on here having discussion about how tired they were of reviewing boring stuff, TV and film. Uh, and we're getting boring stuff and not even experimental mistakes because people are afraid of getting canceled. Now, some people read this as a potential, you know, as in the zeitgeist right now, this cancel culture. Uh, but I think all of us on the panel seem to think what he's really talking about is the literal definition of canceled the way that TV people know it is like your show won't exist anymore because it doesn't bring the studio the money it needs to. To a certain extent, this is true primarily 
I think of, I guess, network shows that will still get pulled, <laughs> like, three episodes in if they bomb hard enough. Um, but yeah, that's a very real thing. Like, if you go out on a limb and people don't connect with what you're doing, then, yeah, you're probably going to get yanked. It's a real fear. It's a real fear for people, um, especially newcomers up and coming talent in the industry is like you have this one shot it's a one in a million opportunity and like there is this very real fear that if you make something outrageous it won't connect and you're done and then you're done in the industry and then you're done with everything there's a lot at stake and it used to be <clears throat> there used to be more time given and it is an advantage of streaming that at least you'll get a full season out but it's um, it's scary. And I don't think his assessment is wrong. Yeah. Um, Although it's wrong how people responded oh, yeah, to it. People's interpretation of his assessment were wrong. But his assessment, I think, is dead on. I agree with what you guys are saying. And I, I absolutely feel like most of the TV we watch these days is, is TV that's built to mirror another successful product because uh, that's how the conversation is turned like it it feels like with and it's not just the you know the the addition of of marvel and the mcu and you know uh star wars to to television that has led us this way but it really feels like tv used to be the place where the mid-budget dramas that hollywood no longer made as movies would go and now it's like no no no, we don't need those either like tv can be the place where we just have blockbusters too um and you know that's really disappointing like there, there's not as many outlets uh not as many distributors not as many studios looking for those shows that will break the mold like there's not as much of a belief out there that if we make that one show that is completely distinct and is our own we can build a brand around that uh it's turned into no 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 we we have this massive ip because we're part of a conglomerate we can use that to hook people in much easier than taking a risk on something artistic. Um, and that's very sad. Uh, and one of the reasons why it's very exciting that the underground railroad is coming out because it's magnificent guys. It's just so good. So go watch that. Hold on to IP. that last bit. Yeah. 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 Uh, I will IP say eventually. I will say I have heard from people that even when you go to, to to outlets that are that are expressly looking for certain types of stories to tell, when you are selling something like that, they want to know what successful property it's like. Like, is this is this could this be successful to us like This Is Us was for NBC? Could this be successful to us in a way that in a prestige way that uh I don't know. Pen fifteen is for Hulu. Like, what do I know and love that this is like? Because they they can't comprehend it any other way. They can't see the potential. It has to be based in 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 something that already exists, and that's not how art is always made uh, or ever made. Um, but it's the only language they speak. 
so I think that's another reason we get things that just seem like slightly altered versions of some other story. Well, and there was a there's a book coming out that I'm forgetting the name of, sadly, that's about Amazon and kind of how Amazon came to be. And a few of the notations from that book were making the rounds on Twitter, uh, one of which was that uh, uh, Jeff Bezos claimed that he knew how to make great TV. It was obvious. You just have to follow these seven easy steps. And then he would check in on all of his shows to make sure that they were following each and every one of those steps. Uh, and Roy Price, who was head of Amazon at the time, uh, diligently obeyed these orders while secretly telling his staff that, you know, sometimes the great artists have to break from this mold. Like you can't just follow the rules all the time. Sometimes you have to trust the people uh, who are creating it know what they're doing and, and follow that artistic integrity, which is how we got a lot of, you know, the, the, very experimental, very strange early Amazon Prime video shows. Um, but it doesn't feel like that exists anymore. It doesn't feel like there's room for that belief in the executive mindset anymore. It's much more the executive belief of, no, 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 I know this works. We can recreate it. Uh, that's a much easier path to to believe in from a business standpoint. Bosch probably followed all seven rules. Almost certainly. <laughs> How dare you say that about Almost Bosch? Certainly. Uh, I will. I I will say that I think part of it is because that's why Bosch set lasted so long. It followed all seven rules. No, Bosch lasted that long because it was a creative enterprise that was uh, invested in by the original <laughs> writer and an army of talented uh, Titus Welliver just artists so, soaking up and soaking up honestly, the spotlight. Honestly. Uh, uh, Based on intellectual property. Um, <laughs> One of the rules, probably. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Uh, well, I think the problem, too, is, like, how does TV make money right now? Um, and it's not as clear cut. Like, yes, there's Game of Thrones, but then there's the 500 other shows on TV. Libby, so, we're just in the clicker. That sounds like an entire episode. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. How does TV uh, make money? <laughs> well, yeah, like, I... Uh, fair. But, um... Yeah, it's just, it's it's a confusing time, and I think Donald Glover was absolutely accurate, and I think the real story is how everyone <laughs> read the quote wrong. Well, speaking of really canceled, uh, Dakota Johnson's favorite uh, birthday uh, party pal, uh, oh, Ellen boy. DeGeneres, has mentioned that she will be leaving her show... In uh, in 2022, what's what's her reasoning? Let's see here. As great as the show is, and as fun as it is, it's just not a challenge anymore. And when you're a creative person, you constantly need to be challenged. So uh, that's what Ellen DeGeneres told The Hollywood Reporter. <laughs> so it, it, she was challenged for the 15 seasons before this? Yeah. That's so, really upsetting, so I guess honestly. It, ha it has nothing to do with any of the flack that Ellen uh, or her producers got uh, for discrimination uh, within right. within the crew. I think it... Abuse. It and yeah, it's just, it's just the challenging aspect of it. Yeah, the challenge is to not have more stories like that come out. <laughs> the challenge <laughs> is to stop treating her staff that way. The challenge um, was to have a news, a couple of news cycles in a row where there wasn't negative news. She failed. Uh, yeah, it's uh, okay. Good riddance. I watched Good it riddance. in a auto glass repair shop once. I, I feel like that's the extent of. We're into the meat, guys. 
into the meat. Oh, now. Now we're into the meat. Now we're into the meat. Uh, today, Thursday, May 13th, uh, the first three episodes of Hacks drop on HBO Max. Am I right about that, Libby? And then yeah. last last Friday, uh, May 7th, the first two episodes of Mythic Quest second season dropped. And then next Monday, the final episode of Breeders second season will air. So I guess let's talk about comedy. <laughs> Libby, you you have been talking about hacks. Uh, you have been talking about hacks off the record uh, for for quite some time now <laughs> about how you think it is the best comedy uh, coming, and that if anything can unseat the great Ted Lasso at this year's Emmys, why not hacks? Yeah, I I do feel that way. Um, hacks, it's I've seen five episodes. The first one is probably the weakest, which is why it's nice that they're releasing three. I think they might only be releasing two. Well, you check on that. I'll give people... If you're unfamiliar, uh, Hacks is an upcoming HBO Max comedy from the producers of Broad City. It stars Gene Smart as a faded Las Vegas uh, stand-up comedian uh, who has this huge stage show and is just a legend um, who is forced to hire a like 25 year old comedian who who had disproportionate success she was discovered when she was 20 and was supposed to have this big illustrious ca- career until a wayward in- internet comment uh, kind of derailed all of that um cancel culture cancel culture it's the theme with the that's the word of the day the theme of the pod yeah um the young comedian played by hannah einbinder who comes from comedy royalty. Her mom's Lorraine Newman, who's an original cast member on SNL. It's amazing. Partially because it's it made me laugh out loud several times, which just doesn't happen as much anymore. But it's also a very interesting examination of what women need to do to succeed, um, what they sacrifice, and honestly, how they feel about each other in that scenario. It looks at the generation gap. I think uh, describing it all sounds kind of trite and terrible but it's 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 incredibly funny and it's incredibly moving and so much of that credit goes to Jean Smart who's a consummate actress who has found huge success playing comedic and dramatic roles so many times when you see shows about comedy like Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip uh, they aren't funny which is a problem because uh, comedy is supposed to be funny but that is not at all a problem in this show uh they'll workshop jokes and they'll actually get better which just doesn't happen on other shows i don't know it's really good it's not going to be ted lasso because i then went back and rewatched ted lasso ted lasso is just the balm that everyone needed to get through the last 18 months or so but i i feel very strongly that hacks will be nominated in series uh partially it's a very weak category but also it absolutely deserves it and if there were a show that could stand up to ted lasso i do think this is it i'm very anxious to see the rest of the season i have heard rumors that the rest of the screeners might go out tomorrow uh uh, so we'll see but um for now Uh, I just really love it. I would suggest checking out the first two episodes. If it's not for you, I get it, but I just love it. I love ladies and ladies being funny. 
Well, what, what I'd say about Hanks is, one, Livy is 100% right, as always. We would never disagree on anything. But the impressive thing to me is that it does set itself up to fail at almost every single turn. Like, as you mentioned, this is a uh, a showbiz comedy, which there's been plenty of very famous, successful ones. Like, 30 Rock is immaculate. The Larry Sanders show is fantastic. Like, you can expand that dating much further back as well. But, like, the stuff that's really trying to take place in a writer's room and talk about what's happening in writing and in comedy and all that, I feel like they're they're very hard to pull off. Um, the ones that are actually trying to be funny... I feel like that's even harder. Like, I mean, Studio 60 is a is a pretty famous bomb. Um, there's also uh, I'm Dying Up Here, which is the Showtime series from a few years ago, executive produced by Jim Carrey. But both of those were technically like hour-long dramas. Like you could they could kind of cheat their way around it where it's like, listen, we don't have to be funny. Uh, the problem with Studio 60 was that the jokes they said were funny also weren't funny. So that is another thing where it becomes a problem. Like it, it's like right. you not only have to give the audience a joke like watch it be constructed and hope that they laugh at it while it's being constructed you like which is a very hard thing to do uh you also have to be convincing and correct that the jokes are funnier that you're making them better that whatever you're saying is the good joke is actually good and distinguishably better than the bad joke which is not an easy thing to do well i think i think what's interesting about the two things you just brought up ben is the fact that both 30 rock and the larry sanders show to a certain extent are mocking the thing that they are doing. So Larry, San- like Larry Sanders, like he is mocking what these talk shows are within the structure of a talk show. And Thirty Rock, sort of insanely, essentially treats SNL as if it's the worst show on the planet. If you think of it as like this is Tina Fey writing about her experience, like beep beep ribbit ribbit, uh, <laughs> wh- like where- werewolf bar mitzvah, like these are shitty <laughs> shitty sketches. And like that's they're, what's, they're... what's funny about it is how bad the sketches are. And it's her <laughs> sort of expounding upon the fact that like this show is ridiculous. Everything we do is ridiculous. You don't have to worry about the jokes within the show being good because that's not what the meat of the show is they're absolutely satiric though i would say that the larry sanders show did the hard thing where the show that it created the parts of the late night show that we saw whether it was his monologue at the beginning or the interviews that he did with people a lot of them are very funny like they managed to make the thing that's supposed to be funny funny and convincing in its send-up of these other late night programming as well as you know what happens behind the scenes at the late night programming and hacks very much you know gets into the behind the scenes stuff but it is not a satire like it is it is trying to show rather sincerely uh how hard it is to make these careers work and i think if there's a flaw in the show it is in that kind of generational divide in that um ava the the younger comedic writer is like so often thrown under the bus uh to elevate gene smart's character like to show how hard gene smart worked to be there and to show you know the ignorance of this young millennial who didn't even bother to study this quote-unquote legendary performer they so often make cracks about that that it can be hard to root for the writer like she like whenever a, a character on tv and this is a bugaboo for me in particular whenever a character on tv is presented as someone who's rather lazy or doesn't want to work that hard uh, i usually check out pretty quick and i think that they're they're actively making choices to show that she's progressing from that state to another state um but it's harder to see the uh 
the benefit for Gene Smart. You know, like I, it's it's easy to see it from a uh, kind of familial daughter replacement kind of relationship, but it's it's less clear how beneficial it is for her career um other than you know i guess she might if she ever agrees to take some of these jokes get into it with a younger audience but um but yeah i i i think it's very easy to respect hacks for accomplishing as much as it does which with the amount of obstacles it put in its own way um and it's absolutely a distinct version of this show it's absolutely funny uh it absolutely has like just incredible story structure like the writing on this is just so well done um that you it's almost like i can see the show it's becoming at like before it becomes it like you can just invest in it because they've earned that trust with the way that they set it up episode by episode by episode and progress these characters towards something where you're like i already want season two i already want it to be here so i can just enjoy that and i don't have to worry like is it gonna develop into this like are they gonna push past this part um but yeah it's great i think that was i think that was the the impetus for my immediate joy over the show and my my very bold statements read Ted Lasso was that I can see what this show could be like very soon like maybe in the next few episodes and I'm so into it and I want it I don't know how it's a second season how it has a second season honestly but um I am very passionate about what I suspect the show is about to become I'm very excited to watch for several reasons. One, Gene Smart is uh, a national treasure, and uh, I'm glad that the rest of the world has finally caught up. Two, Libby's been talking so highly about it, and I just I just want to make sure that Libby and I don't have to have a fight about oh, hacks. I don't want to have a fight. Uh, That'd be great. But three, uh, and this isn't really a reason, but just uh, to, to sort of cement the fact that I compare all of the big entries uh, in this year's Emmy comedy race to movies from the 1980s. It just feels like the movie Punchline, except <laughs> instead of uh, gender being the, the sort of dividing line between the two leads, it's age. And I haven't I'm, seen that movie, but And that I'm fine. Great. I'm fine with that. I mean, I haven't seen Punchline in a long time. I don't know if I it mean, everybody up. Everybody remembers Punchline. That's not, <laughs> I mean, we Do you guys know... remember Punchline? Tom Hanks? No? Yeah, he's a person I know. Oh, it's good. Sally Field plays a, like a, a house mom who has free time on her hands or something and like goes to a comedy club and joins an open mic. And Tom Hanks is like a, a comedian trying to like desperately make it. And he's like very good. He's like great. Like the comedians love him. And he takes her under her wing and like starts to teach her comedy. And she blows up and becomes more successful than he does. Uh, and like there's a big shot at like getting on like a, a Carson type show. And like he blows it. Like eats it and uh she does super well and she gets it and the whole movie is sort of like based on that trajectory sorry if i ruined the, the movie spoilers for everyone <laughs> yeah spoilers for that 20 you've had 32 years 33 years to watch it oh my God. i'll get around to it eventually uh, unlike ava i will respect the comedy of our of our past and ted and lasso like leo honestly <laughs> Ted Lasso blew past what I thought was just going to be Major League Redux. It was not that. It was, it was much better. Uh, though I still have a soft spot, soft spot for the USA Network version of Major League with no uh, curse words. I would have been so upset 
with this podcast if you hadn't mentioned the USA version of Major League <laughs> with no curse words. At the end, when Dorn goes up to uh, Wild Thing Vaughn and hands him the ball, instead of saying, strike this motherfucker out, he says, strike this guy out. Ben, speaking of workplace comedies. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Segway! <laughs> Mythic Quest returned. After having two sort of like mini episodes uh, during the pandemic, one filmed entirely remotely, like everyone was in their own in own space with the exception of uh, the two leads for quarantine, and then sort of a return episode that happened a couple of months ago in anticipation of the season. Uh, but you reviewed it. You said it's back and it's great. I forget what your first line of your like in-process review was. It was like, oh. it's here. And I said, I don't know. It's really good. <laughs> And I said, I said, publish it, you coward. First and foremost, I have to correct you. Uh, the two leads were not together during the quarantine episode. They only made it look like they were for that one moment. That's right. And in fact, they weren't together. That was her roommate or husband or something. I don't really know. But that's why uh, that's why Rob McElhoney is wearing the hoodie. So you can't right. tell. Yeah, exactly. And that was it's very like the important. Kissing on pen fifteen. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Or the kissing oh, at the end of the kissing at the end of Thor two. I immediately regret uh, raising the point that I originally made and will instead go into the second broader point, which, which is Mythic that, Quest is yes, back, Mythic, baby! Mythic Quest Season 2 is very good. Um, it's also, to tie this back into to Hacks, it is the actual realization of the second season that we oh. want to see from Hacks. Like Hacks, it's, it's already like, let's get there. We got to have it. I want to have 20 episodes of this that I can just recirculate whenever I need uh, whenever I need them. And as I wrote in the review, Mythic Quest kind of snuck up and became that. I, I definitely felt like the first season was pretty well formed. It also has uh, immaculate story structure and just great writers behind the scenes who who know how to put together an ensemble workplace comedy and did a very, very good job at the first season. Um, but it very quickly became clear to me that when the second season arrived, it was going to join the rotation of kind of feel good sitcoms for me that I'll just have on whenever I need it. Like, like I, it was just very easy to rewatch it. It was very easy to just keep sticking with it and something that I felt like revisiting even when, you know, I didn't need the excuse of, well, I got to write the review. I, I should watch that again. I should brush up. Uh, it would just kind of keep popping up in my rotation. Uh, but no, I, I, this is, this is a show that, um, you know, on Apple TV plus. So I don't know if as many people will see it as, uh, deserve to see it, but Hey, if they subscribe for Ted Lasso, make sure you check this out as well. Um, it's it's just very well done. Like it's it's one of those things where after the first season they identified kind of the strengths of their characters, of their dynamics, of um of the performers even like Danny Pudi uh gets to do so much good shit in season 2 and you're you're just so happy to see him do it within the same show. Like I I feel like he's an actor who if you watch him in enough things you see the range he's capable of. Uh, but rarely is he able to display that within one single thing. Obviously, Community gave him an opportunity to showcase a lot of that in in very exciting ways, but since then it's been rather limited. Um, and he gets to do that here, and it's very, very exciting. Um, I, I still think that there's a little bit of a struggle with some of the standalone stuff that they try to incorporate into the season uh, because it's such a strong ensemble, like it's such a strong workplace comedy. You want to see them lean into that, and when they interrupt that for some sort of breakout like they did in season one 
where it kind of worked, at least it worked for more people <laughs> than me uh, when when they had the standalone episode with Kristen Milioti and Jake Johnson uh, that kind of showed how a, a creative partnership could be fractured by success. This year, they focus on something that's a little more specific to one character's backstory. And I don't know if it works as well as the rest of the season. Um, but it's, it, it is just a show that, that understands itself that wants to talk about issues and, um, also, uh, elevate characters and performers and writers in ways that are very exciting to watch as somebody who loves television. Um, and I also, I just think it's a fun show. Like, I just think they get a lot of the details, right? Um, my sister who, uh, you know, works in coding, uh, mentioned that a lot of the kind of tech setups that they have scattered around the office felt very accurate to, you know, real life people who, who are glued to their computers and work in this field. Um, so like they, they clearly are invested in some of the details, uh, but it never feels like it's bogged down by that. They, they, it's very light on its feet, very fun. And, uh, I feel like the, like the actors are really embracing the ensemble. So, um, mythic, I don't know if mythic quest is like, the best comedy on TV, but having said goodbye to Superstore this year, I was very eager to have another workplace comedy step up and be like, no, 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 we can do a lot of those similar things in our own way and fill that void for you and and uh, just give us five years and we'll pump out 50 episodes. Like that, that was the thing too about those, the quarantine episode and then they had an Everlight episode. Um, it felt like they understood that people needed the continuation of this. It felt like people... You know, they want to stay in this world. So rather than just wait, okay, we drop 10 episodes this year and a year we'll drop 10 more. It's like, maybe we can fill this gap a little bit. Maybe we can do the kind of broadcast TV thing without making 18 episodes where we stretch this as far as we can. And it worked for this guy. So I hope it works for, for everyone else as well. I almost thought of it as like the BBC model of like, here's your holiday special. Like, here's your year end special. That's awesome. I would yeah, love. that might be more fitting. Yeah. Love. If, if the U.S. got into that. If ben, shows did that, yeah. As someone who didn't subscribe to Apple Plus until uh, this year. Um, until Ted Lasso? Oh, no, that was last year. Basically. Well, you know, this year. Oh, it was for the Mosquito Coast. You wanted to watch right, Mosquito Coast. Right, right. I've seen that. Do I have to watch Mythic Quest? Would it, be, would it behoove me to watch Mythic Quest season one? Is it something where season two is significantly better or... Um, what would you suggest for someone who who is new to Mythic Quest? No, I I, I think you should start from the beginning. I, I feel like it's only additive. I feel like um, for me, a lot of the value of strong ensemble comedies is living within them. It's uh, like the kind build. of letting them, yeah, like letting letting them transport you to a different place and kind of. Uh, you know, just listen to the banter, enjoy existing in the background and appreciate the dynamics that they create. Um, right. There's certain things that you learn in season one that are important for season two. Okay. Um, I also think that the the growth of the two main characters played by uh, Rob McElhenney and uh, Charlotte Nickdow are, you know, it's it's very important to to kind of understand how they started to appreciate what they're going through in the second season. Um but it is it is just an additive experience, really. Like I think season two is better and better honed because they went through what they went through on season one. But that's the case with so many good comedies, with the people who you know listen to their audience as well as just learn from doing. 
Um, usually the second season is even stronger. So uh, that's what they did. I think what you were saying about comedies is totally right. That like you kind of have to watch the growing pains. If only because it sets up so many of... It's so much comedies. It's the setup. Even if it's not exciting. Like you do need to know why, you know, uh, Ron Swanson is the way he is. Before you can let him be unvarnished Ron Swanson in season five. You know, like... Uh, yeah, I mean, even even the concept of a bottle episode, which everybody pretty much universally agrees is a lot of fun with a good ensemble cast. It's not the same when you first meet them. Like if you started with a bottle episode, it's not going to be as good as if you incorporated into your second season or, you know, eighth episode or something. And that's what Mythic Quest does. Like they they knowingly create a bottle episode in season two. And it's really good. <laughs> like it's just you appreciate it more because uh you know these people better and the dynamics are are better honed so that like the actual event within the bottle episode feels stronger and more resonant and funnier so yeah no it's it's i think it's just with a lot of first seasons of comedies it's identifying the potential and whether or not they recognize that potential you know as they're creating it based on the trajectory that they've chosen originally um and to to try to segue into uh leo's favorite television show of all time um that's it my it, favorite television apps, show of all time this is a, a slightly different take but it, it absolutely took me until the second season of breeders to fully understand or at least partially understand what they were going for um it's not that i didn't like the first season it's not that they did anything wrong um it just for me to f- understand what the show was trying to accomplish i guess uh I had to see the time jump in season two and then realize, oh, okay, I think I get it now. But for you, Leo, you've known it all along. <laughs> you've got it's on your wavelength. I'll try to be I'll try to be brief because we've gone long on a lot of shows and a lot of topics. But uh, my my main I, I I think I said this in, up top. Breeders isn't for everyone, and I totally get that. I know that at Steve was sort of lukewarm on it. Friend of the pod, Steve Green, the recommendation mach- machine was was sort of lukewarm <laughs> on the show uh season one and i think i understand that it is it is very much in the current uh vogue of dramedies it is not an out and out comedy um the the whatever you want to call it the last the last two episodes of season one the last two episodes of season two both get fairly dark uh and cover very dark topics and and for for parents of uh of all of all stripes and as someone who is not a parent myself uh i could see some someone being a parent the show easily scaring them off immediately uh although maybe there is some ability to laugh at oneself uh the main thing i think the show does super well and to link it to another show that we have talked about previously in the podcast michael patrick o'brien who's the showrunner for ap bio uh, used to have a statement. AP Bio doesn't really do this a ton, but used to have this this theory that like in comedy, uh, there's a there's a vase essentially, which is the laugh. And as tension builds in any scene, you sort of start to stack the vase on higher and higher levels. And I think Breeders uh, is is stacking a va- vases very high consistently. Uh, now you you have to be on the same wavelength as the show to get that laugh. Otherwise, you'll just be like, this is incredibly crude, incredibly mean. It's not 
I don't understand what's funny about this. They're awful parents. Or this is too relatable, and I hate that I see myself in these people. But I do think what Simon Blackwell and Chris Addison and Martin Freeman have created is, like, unique to me. I haven't seen a lot of shows that, you know, traipse in this uh, in this garden of, of sort of despair and, and uh, figuring it out as you go as a parent. It's my, fa- it's my favorite show currently airing. <laughs> Not of all <laughs> emphasize, time. Emphasize the currently airing part. Not well, of no, all I, time. I, but, but yeah, and, it, it and, is a hard watch, I'll say. To put, to put words in our, uh, our good friend Steve's mouth, I think one of the things that hurt breeders from the beginning in those early episodes was that the easiest comparison point for a lot of TV fans was the uh, Amazon Prime UK import catastrophe in that both of them were trying to take a more honest yet com- like honest look at being a parent, being a parent of, of young children um, and catastrophe, you know, was such its own thing. Like it just kind of owned that space in a way where it didn't feel like there was a lot of room for other people to, to, you know, jump in. And that was my immediate comparison point as well. So a lot of breeders felt like kind of the lighter version of it. It wasn't even that it was too dark or that it was trying to out dark catastrophe. It was just like it was focusing on, um, you know, Martin Freeman's characters, kind of rage issues. And that was a, a very like heavy talking point within the original season. And I was just like, I don't know where you're going with this. I don't really know how I'm supposed to feel watching it. I don't really know what you're trying to say about it. And then when season two hit and they took a time jump forward, you know, I don't know exactly how long it was. It was like seven years or something. It was a, it was a significant time jump. And you see kind of how these kids have developed with a dad who, you know, felt that way, um, had those thoughts, took it out on his kids sometimes, uh, but then sought out help and, and tried to, you know, do what he could to correct it it suddenly clicked for me. Like it just felt like, okay, this is, this is actually trying to show the consequences rather than worry about just how the parents survive this. Like rather than like, okay, how does, how do you survive having your first kid? How do you get through the first couple of years? How do you, you know, get past the point of just worrying about keeping them alive and then move on to being, you know, a quote unquote happy family. It's actually looking like, Oh no, no, no. How do your decisions and how does your behavior around the kid like around when you're making these choices, when you're in that situation, have an impact on them for the rest of their lives. And that's such a big question. That's such a, that's such a big issue to, to leap on that. I kind of loved the challenge of it and, uh, appreciated a lot more of season two because you could see the results in, uh, believable and very funny ways. So, um, I hope it gets another season. Yeah, I think I just mean dark in terms of like the. I mean, this is not spoiling too much, but the general premise of the pilot of the series is that Martin Freeman is trying to get his kids to yep. sleep and takes them out in the car in the middle of the night, and his wife Daisy Haggard thinks he may have murdered the children. Like that is yeah no there, that is it's, the, that is the pilot. <laughs> it is dark. Like I'm not saying it's it's not dark. I just like she, she it, calls the cops. Uh, she thinks he may have literally right, murdered the children. Right. Right, it sets a pretty uh, high bar. Um, I just it it considering some of the things that are said in catastrophe, it, it didn't feel like that was enough to distinguish it from that old show or to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah they can do this too. And again, eventually it clicked. It's like they're not really trying to do that. That's not really what the the mission statement of this show is. 
Um, so, you know, if you can, if you can tolerate it, like you said, Leo, if it's, if it's more than just a horror show for you, um, then I think there's a lot to appreciate. Guys, we got to get to the murder rankings. Oh no. We got to get to Leo's murder speaking power of, rankings. Speaking of comedy. Uh, we just had the fourth episode of Mayor of Easttown. Let me get the, I want to get the synopsis up. Uh, with Mayor forced to take a backseat on the case, Colin presses a local priest about the vague circumstances that prompted his transfer to the parish. Meanwhile, an anonymous call gives Dawn hope that Katie might still be alive. Uh, a lot happened this episode. Mostly, uh, Mayor still working the case because she can't, you can't, can't, can't have her not work the case. So she shows up to Collins, shows up to Collins' house with his mom. Uh, He introduced her as my mayor. Maybe the moment of the series. This is (laughs) this is my mayor. I mean, my my partner mayor. (laughs) So cute. So without further ado, here are my top five uh, potential murder rankings. Number five, I'm 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 doing a cheat. I'm gonna do a tie, and some of this is based off the uh, the scenes from next week. But I'm going to give Brianna and Jess. So Brianna is Dylan's girlfriend who beat the shit out of Aaron. And then Jess is Aaron's best friend. I'm giving them equal odds. Jess told Mayor where the journals were. And then the journals weren't there. Why did Jess take the journals? She's involved in some way, shape, or form. And I think uh, we're going we're gonna to find that out. Uh, number four, she wasn't in this episode. But I'm sticking with my thoughts on Faye. Uh, I think they might be hiding. Faye is uh, again, again, again. Faye is Frank's w- wife to be. Uh, I, I love this. Every, every time I say Faye, uh, the fact that you guys both both blaze <laughs> over probably means I'm very, very wrong on Faye. But here's my listen. My th- here's the thing. Here's the thing. There are so many fucking characters on this show. Like, yeah, I'm not so entirely sure I know the name of the killer. Like my, I, my thinking well, on Faye, I think we is don't pretty, know the name of the pretty, killer. Well, yeah. No, I don't. I don't. I have my suspicions. We well, just know more than Leo does. I should right. also, I should also state this, and I think I mentioned this to Ben uh, off pod, but there's a lot of bad shit happening in East Town. My murder power rankings are only for the murder of Aaron, not for whoever is kidnapping women. I think these are different crimes perpetrated by different people. Uh, so I don't want that to get confused because obviously it seem it's seemingly a man who is kidnapping these women and putting them in the in the pub in the back of the pub. So yeah, this week we did see the pub for the first time, so that was fun. So when I suggest Faye, I'm not saying that Faye is kidnapping these women. I'm saying Faye killed Aaron potentially because of the relationship <laughs> that Frank was carrying on with her. Frank, we know Frank, we know was was drunk and passed out after singing Uptown Girl, so we know it wasn't him. <clears throat> We have a well, photo. We have photo evidence that Frank was asleep. I never saw a timestamp on that photo. Did she look at it as carefully yeah. as she looked at the uh, yeah, the video consonant. surveillance for the peeper in the season or in the first episode? She yeah, just deleted the that shit. The she peeper. was like, "Fuck you, gone." Where is the peeper? Not in my top five. We'll have to see when the peeper <laughs> pops back on the top five. He's not on my top five. I know. I've been researching. Everyone's got their murder lists. A lot of people say the peeper's still out there. It's not the peeper. peeper. I don't think the peeper did the killing. Uh, number three, I'm sticking with my gut. Richard Ryan, Guy Pierce, too big a name. He's got to be on the list. He's got to be on the list. I don't care if it seems like he has good intentions with Mayor. He's he's new to town. He hit he hit up the you know the that app where they're looking for escorts, and he somehow 
ended up killing uh, Aaron. That's just that's just what I'm thinking. Two, this is definitely based on scenes from next week, but the cousin of the dad of the girl who was killed? That's right, Billy? Billy Ross? You're back on my radar, buddy. What are you up to? What are you hiding in that I, toolbox? As you're going through your list, I'm trying to remember <laughs> what you, what, what. What I've seen. What you've seen and like what you might have seen in the next week on. So if I laugh, just... it's just like, yeah, I have an idea of what. Billy that. Ross, Billy Ross hasn't been on the episode, but hasn't been on an episode since episode two, I don't think. But so we haven't seen him in two episodes, but I think he's going to jump back into the rankings. He's at number two and number one. I think I might be alone in this. Colin Zabel. I know he's a sweetheart. I know he's a sweetheart. I know he says my mayor. He's my mayor. She's my mayor. I just think he's this loser. He probably does need to use potentially escort sites to get dates. I think he solves I think he solves crimes by knowing everything on the inside. Look, am I wrong? You bet. Are these five insane? Of course they are. But Colin Table, number one with a bullet. He's the murderer. Uh, Am I wrong? I- you bet. <laughs> <laughs> Millions of Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation. Anywhere our theme music featured excerpts of the classic YouTube video, Bure Talking About TV and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Anna Harris-Brights and our publisher is James Israel and our executive editor is Anne Donahue. Brought to you by some of our favorite second seasons of television. Uh, ben is, of course, going to stub for... The Leftovers. Libby suggested The New Girl. I'm going with the rest of development, which I think actually improved upon a pretty perfect first season. And as a group, Millions of Screens endorses skipping the second season of Friday Night Lights. No, absolutely not. Skip it. You do not You do not skip any seasons of the greatest television show ever made. That's is that also when Saracen insane. is sleeping with his, na- with his grandmother's caretaker? Is that the same season? Also... Landry killing like that to guy. Start a running list <laughs> of shows that Ben calls the greatest show of all time because <laughs> I, mean, there, I can think of at least <laughs> there's two of them on that three? list. Yeah, I, just, no, I know. I just gave I four shows, and two of them are the greatest show of all time. Yeah. You can find us on Twitter at a million screens at Midwest Spitfire at Ben T Travers and at Leo Adrian Garcia. Remember, if you have other mayor murder power rankings, make sure to tweet it at all of us. Tell us who you think the killer is. As always. This is Ben, Libby and Leo remind you that you shouldn't let poets lie to you. You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. <laughs>